If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Well, as we uh, get to the triumphal entry in uh, Matthew 21, we've come to the final week of Jesus' life, uh, 33 years of life for Christ, approximately three years of ministry, and yet all the gospel writers will put the greatest amount of emphasis upon Jesus' last week, probably 30 to 40%, depending on which gospel writer devotes itself completely to the final week of, of Jesus. It's, I think it's important. I don't think the gospel writers intended us to see this final week as just another series of events. And the gospel writers wanted us to know that this is the most important event, most specifically the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That everything else we've studied up to this point, it is meaningless if you do not grasp the reason and the purpose for which Christ came, which was to die for our sins. In fact, even in our text this morning, we're going to see a group of people with a lot of excitement, a lot of passion, even the quoting of Scripture, but they'll be totally confused because they lost sight of the purpose for which Christ had come. And they miss the gospel. And listen, I think this is a warning to us as well. That if we're not careful, we will make the same mistake. We'll make the same mistake as these Jews who on one day are crying, Hosanna, Lord save us, here's the Messiah. And five days later shouting, crucify him. Because he didn't deliver on the goodies that they wanted. We must not lose sight of the purposes of God that come to fruition and fulfillment in the gospel where Christ dies for our sins. Well, with that in mind, let's look to this text. Let's begin together in verse 1. It says there in verse 1, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent uh, two disciples. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem at Passover. Uh, Passover is one of three times of the year when the nation of Israel would all gather up together in Jerusalem, kind of like a family reunion, kind of like the 4th of July. And they would remember the deliverance of God from the bondage to the Egyptians through the blood of a lamb. And here we see Christ entering at Passover, and he is depicting himself as the Passover lamb. You remember Jesus, as we're going to study later, will pull the disciples aside and they'll take the last Passover meal. And you'll remember he takes the bread and says, this is my body. And he'll take the cup and say, this is my blood. That Jesus is depicting himself as the Passover lamb, but he has not come to deliver them from the Egyptians or the Romans, but he's come to deliver them from the greater bondage of sin, Satan, and death. They just can't yet see it at this moment. And so Jesus, he comes down from Bethpage. Bethpage is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus was raised from the dead, very close to Jerusalem. He comes down from Bethpage. He comes down the Mount of Olives. He'll go through the Garden of Gethsemane. If you've been to Jerusalem, this is one of the best parts because you get to see what Jesus saw as he was coming down the Mount of Olives. He would go through the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's entering from the east side of Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits in the middle. If you're facing it to the north, you've got the Kidron Valley on the east. You've got the Hinnon Valley on the left. It's, it's an amazing picture. The Hinnon Valley is the 
valley, the trash heap, essentially. It's the, the valley of death. And then you have the Kidron Valley from which the, the, the water of life would flow. So the difference between death and life sits in the middle with Jerusalem and the place of God. But Jesus is entering in from the east. He's coming down the, uh, from Bethpage, down the Mount of Olives, through the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll go through the Kidron Valley, and he'll come up on the eastern side of the temple area. And he will go into, Mark's gospel will tell us that he actually enters into the temple. Now, why is it significant to trace these steps? Because Jesus will enter in through the eastern gate. And you might say, well, why is that significant? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that in Ezekiel chapter 11, uh, the Babylonians are coming for their final deportation. The Babylonians are coming as God's means of judgment upon the nation of Israel. Essentially, the nation of Israel says, we don't want you. And God says that I'm leaving. And Ezekiel has a vision. And in this vision, he sees the glory of God depart from the temple. And where does it depart through? It departs through the eastern gate. And the glory of God leaves. But God's not done. And in Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel has another vision. And there he sees God's glory return to the temple. And it returns by which gate? The eastern gate. Jesus here is reestablishing God's presence on earth. And every Jew that knew his or her Bible would have picked up on the imagery that this is the Passover lamb. This is the Messiah King. Now, just a side note here. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can't go through the Eastern Gate. It's walled up. The Muslims, when they conquered Jerusalem, um, they had heard about these prophecies concerning the return of Messiah through the Eastern Gate, and they decided to wall it up. And not only did they do that, they put a, a graveyard in front of the Eastern Gate because the Jews, the dead, are considered unclean, all in an effort to keep Messiah out. I'm quite certain Jesus is not too worried about that wall um, that they have placed there. But in these actions, Jesus is clearly depicting himself as both the Passover lamb and the Messiah king. He's the reestablishment of God's presence on earth. And then look at verse 2. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he'll send them. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Imagine going down to Lenexa city center and taking someone's bicycle, beginning to ride off on it and them saying, what are you doing? And just saying, well, the Lord has need of it. How far do you think you're going to get down the road? Probably uh, not very far. But these words that Jesus speaks in this culture, they're the words of a king who would requisition your stuff for his purposes. The words of a king who would requisition your animal and say, the Lord has need of it. And Jesus is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And this owner lets that mama and that colt go. Jesus is going to ride a colt, the foal of a donkey, and this is significant for several reasons. Number one, we have no record of Jesus riding any animal at any other time, but he does so at this point, and I think Jesus is doing this intentionally 
This is a deliberate action on the part of Jesus that we might take notice. Matthew here quotes from Zechariah chapter 9. I'm giving you a lot of Old Testament quotes. you got to write this stuff down. We don't have time today. I wish we did. But in Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah prophesies concerning a great king and a great kingdom. And he's bringing God's judgment on the nations. And he's working his way down towards Jerusalem. And he's just destroying city, Tyre and Sidon. And he just works his way down, if you read Zechariah 9. And he's working his way down all the way to Jerusalem. But God says, I'm going to spare Jerusalem. I'm going to protect my people. And what Zechariah says is that God is going to bring Israel's king as opposed to this great king who's coming down and destroying this this nation. God will bring his king, but Israel's king will come, but he's not depicted as a tyrannical king. He's not depicted with with bloodshed. He's not uh, depicted with great militaristic power. He comes with humility. He comes not on a white stallion, but on the colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, he will be a humble king. King. Now, kings don't tend to be humble people, do they? Uh, Kings of the nations don't tend to lay their life down for the good of the people. They don't tend to wash men's feet. No, they exalt themselves, but not this king. As Paul would say, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. The kings of the nations don't tend to humble themselves to the point of death, even death on a cross. And they sure don't ride in on donkeys. They ride in on white stallions like Alexander the Great or on tanks like Hitler. But not Israel's king. Not our king. He's the wounded king. He's the king who didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I don't know about you. But that's the kind of king I want. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of king I'll serve and I'll give my life for. The one who is humble and lays his life down for the salvation of the people. Not only was was this a a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, it goes all the way back to Genesis 49. You remember in Genesis 49, God or Jacob is declaring his blessings upon his son Sons, and and he passes over, God passes over in his sovereignty. He passes over Reuben, and he passes over, over Simeon. But then he comes to Judah, and remember what he says? And he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And listen to this. And he ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. This goes all the way back to Genesis 49 where God prophesied that this great king who would come from the line of Judah, he would be a humble king, the greatest king of all the earth, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, his choice of transportation would be a donkey. He's a humble king who loves his people. But while he might be humble, Make no mistake, he is powerful. Mark's gospel tells us that this is no ordinary cult. Mark's gospel tells us that this is a cult upon which no one has ever sat. Have you ever tried to sit on a cult 
that has never been ridden. Anybody give it a shot before? I worked on a ranch in Colorado. I, knew, I grew a profound respect for the power of horses. And you get on a horse that doesn't want to be ridden. You're in for a crazy ride. Jesus will ride in on a colt upon which no one has ever sat. And the picture here is that creation is subject to its king. Do you know that the creation longs for redemption? And this cult knows its king. And it humbly submits to Jesus. See, anybody can ride a white stallion. Anybody can drive a tank. But there's only two people who can set on a colt upon which no one else has ever ridden. The first Adam and the last Adam. And here is Christ. He's a humble king. He's a powerful king. He's the king of all kings. Look at verses 6 through 8. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Here these people are. They were full of expectation and anticipation they see the situation. I think they saw the imagery of the Passover lamb. They see him riding in on a colt. They've seen Christ's power and his miracles. They've heard his authority and his teaching and his preaching. And now they see this imagery coming together. And in their mind, surely this is the king. And all they know to do is to start throwing down their cloaks and cutting off branches. And you got to remember, this is no small crowd. The very conservative estimates are at least 500,000 people. And the other end of the spectrum is as much as 2 million. Can you imagine this moment? All the excitement. And all they know to do is to, to lay down their cloaks. You know, there's only one other place where this happens in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 9, there's a king, Joram, and he's the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And if you don't know 2 Kings, God didn't like Ahab and Jezebel very much. And God decides to raise up his own king. You know what the king's name was? Jehu. God is going to raise up Jehu. So Elijah sends one of his servants to go and to get this Jehu, this great commander of the military, and he's going to bring God's judgment on Ahab's family, including Joram. And Elijah's servant takes, um, takes Jehu into the house and anoints him with oil as the king. This is God's king. This is the rightful king. And he comes out and all Jehu's men are saying, what happened? Well, they know really quickly. God just established the rightful king. This is God's king. And do you know what the response of Jehu's men was? They start throwing down their cloaks. This is the rightful king. And right here, this nation recognizes this is the king. 
They throw down their cloaks, and then they begin to wave these palm branches. Now, we always associate these palm branches with um, the, the Palm Sunday event. A palm tree in the nation of Israel, they're so proud of them. Um, if you've been there, you've seen this, you know this. They love to point out these beautiful palm trees, kind of like the, the national tree of Israel. They provide shade. Um, they pro- produce these sweet uh, dates. And so it's, it's, it would it almost be like waving their national uh, flag. And so here these people are just worked up with excitement, worked up with anticipation. And look at verse 9. The crowd's going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And this is a quotation from Psalm 118. Psalms 113 through 118 go together. Psalms 113 through 115 are praising God for his past faithfulness in delivering the people. Psalms 116, 117 deal with God's present faithfulness. That God has been faithful in the past. He'll be faithful today. Isn't that a good reminder? When we remember God's past faithfulness, it's a reminder that God's power is available to us today. That the God who delivered them from Egypt is still working in their midst. But then Psalm 118 was always viewed as future. Jesus will quote from it. Uh, Peter will quote from it and always quoting future events. In fact, this is the psalm in which we'll get uh, verses like the stone which the builders rejected. This has come, become the chief cornerstone. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in us. But here, save us, Lord. Bring prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That God's promise for future deliverance in their minds is coming to fruition today. Save us, we pray. Hosanna, save us. The only problem is they don't want personal salvation for their sins. They want national salvation from the Romans. And Christ didn't come to free them from the Romans. He came to free them from their bondage to sin, Satan, and death, but they can't see it. Look at verses 10 through 11. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The Bible has been likened to a two-part play. I think it's a great analogy that if you only see If you go to a two-part play and you only see the first half, what is your question going to be? Well, how does it end? But if you only view the second part of the play, what are you doing the whole play? You're nudging the person next to you saying, where does that guy come from? What is he doing? Who is he? That's the Old Testament, New Testament. That the Bible is intended to be read together. That the Old Testament anticipates a coming king. The New Testament says, here he is. See, all the questions were, well, who is this this Zechariah 9? Who is this great king that that rides a a colt, the foal of a donkey? Who is this guy in Genesis 49 until Shiloh comes and and he'll tie his, his donkey to the choicest vine that there'll be so much prosperity that he'll tie a donkey to the choicest vine. Who is this guy in Psalm 118 that's the stone that the builders rejected that's become the chief cornerstone? That was the question of all Israel. They were always looking, always anticipating Christ who would come and now they answer their own question and they see him right in front of them. It is Christ, it is Jesus 
from Nazareth. But the problem is they don't understand why he's come. You know, what's interesting, I spent this week looking back through Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. If you look into Luke 19.41, it's an amazing picture. You have all this excitement. Maybe a million people screaming and shouting. Waving palm branches, laying down their cloaks. And yet, what's the response of Jesus? What is Jesus doing? What does Luke 19, 41 say? It says, Jesus wept. In the midst of this, you see Jesus on a colt with her mama right beside her. And tears are welling up in his eyes. Why? Because he's the only one who knows what's coming. The disciples don't get it, not at least at this point. They will later. The purple, the people certainly, they don't get it. That they're looking for a political leader. They want the nation restored. They want the temple back. They want this great political, militaristic, economic leader. But what they really need is a perfect lamb who dies in their place. Let me just conclude with this. Two great mistakes of the Jews. And they are mistakes that I believe, if we're not careful, we'll make too. Two mistakes that the Jews made. Number one, they misunderstood the gospel. They lost sight of the purpose of God in the gospel. The focus of the word of God from beginning to end is how do sinners like you and me get into the presence of God? That's the whole purpose of the word of God. How do sinners like you and I enter into the presence of perfect, almighty God? And the answer of the Bible is Christ. That's the good news of the gospel, that Christ came to save sinners, that you and I can have the promise of eternal life through faith in Christ who died in our place for our sins. That Christ didn't come to restore the national prosperity of Israel any more than he came to restore the national prosperity of America. And I want to be careful here, but I believe that we make the same mistake as these Jews when we focus more attention on the restoration of America than we do the salvation of our lost family, friends, and coworkers. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be active in these other ways or that we shouldn't pray. But listen, when we focus more attention on restoring the glory of this nation than we do about the salvation of the world, we've lost the, we've missed the whole point. God help us. God help me. I always tell you that these things hit me before they hit anybody else. God has convicted me. Don't lose sight of the gospel. Oh, Satan loves to get us distracted on other things. Christ didn't come to give us more stuff. He didn't come to make the economy better. He didn't, make the, didn't come to make the stock market rise. He came to save me from my sins and your neighbor from their sins and your family member from their sins. God help us if we don't live the gospel, breathe the gospel, and make it the forefront of all of our thoughts and our prayers. Not that we neglect the other things. Don't mishear me. Don't email me, all right? I know I'll get them. I'm just saying, may the gospel always be first. Secondly, they wanted blessings apart from repentance. I think that's what made Jesus weep. They want my blessings. But nobody wants to change. Nobody wants to repent. 
Does that not sometimes happen in our life? God, we want you to bless our marriage. Give us this great marriage. But we ain't changing. We're going to do it however we want to do it. We're going to act however we're going to act. The essence of Psalm 127.1, lest the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. The essence is you can do it however you want to do it. Just don't expect God to bless it. You want to know his good hands of favor? The path of knowing God's favor is repentance and obedience to his word. In other words, before we start asking God to change our circumstances, maybe we ought to ask him to change our hearts. The way to know God's hand of favor is through obedience and repentance. Jesus is the rightful king. He will come and he will die. But listen, that ain't the end of the story. He coming back. Let me just give you a glimpse. Revelation 19, 11, Because he's going to make another entrance. It's a little different if you haven't read the end of the story. It says, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and he wages war. He's ditched the donkey. All right? He ain't coming in humility anymore. His eyes are a flame of fire and his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And that's not his blood, folks. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, folks, that's you and me, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron. That's Psalm chapter 2. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. Listen to me. He came the first time as a baby in a manger. He came as a humble king who obeyed the father to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was a humble king who laid down his life for the people. But he is king. Psalm chapter 2. Ask of me and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. That he's coming back and he will judge. And Psalm 2 goes on to say, take warning, O judges of the earth. Do homage to the son. In other words, submit to the son. Lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Listen to me. He is the king. The key is submitting to him today. Willingly bending the knee to the lordship of the king of kings and the lord of lords. And if you will not bow willingly today, you will bow forcibly then. But you will bow. And at that point, there's no hope of heaven. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you submitted to his lordship today that you might know his salvation, that you might know his peace?
I'm challenging you today, just like the psalmist, do homage to the Son, submit to the Son, that you might not know his wrath. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us and teaches us concerning your Son, Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Lord, if there's anybody here that's never submitted to the Lordship of Christ, I pray that they would see the beauty of your word that so clearly points to Jesus as the Christ, as the promised Messiah. A promise that was made all the way back in Genesis 3. And a promise that was reiterated over and over and over again in the Old Testament of this humble king who would come and lay down his life for the people. God, I pray today they would see the beauty of their Savior. They'd see the depth of their own sin. And they would trust in you. God, for those of us that do know you, oh God, let us never lose sight of the purpose for which you've come. God, let us never lose sight of the gospel. We are so easily distracted, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Like Peter in the ocean, our eyes are pulled away by other things. God, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that we might not make the same mistake as these well-meaning religious Jews. God, help us. Hosanna, we pray. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We'll have pastors here at the front who would love to talk and love to pray with you. Uh, Maybe um, you just want to pray. This is your time. Know this morning, you will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.